Well, good evening, everybody. This is Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me for Radio Looks Lucid, episode 56. And the title of tonight's episode is The Religious Wars of the 21st Century. Now, if you are like me and, and you're a, uh, an admirer of uh, the work of uh, Dr. John Robbins, you might recognize that title. That's the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm completely, totally, shamelessly ripping off his uh, title of his uh, 2006 uh, uh, essay that he wrote by that, uh, with, with that exact same title. Uh, it was published as a Trinity Review in, uh, when was that? I know it was in 2006. It was the August 2006 Trinity Review. So this is uh, a title that is uh, it's 15 years old, or almost 15 years old. And yet it's, it's a title that is really as fresh as, as today's headlines. Uh, it's really a remarkable piece. And I'm going to get, uh, get into talking about that in just a minute. But first of all, I just want to say, hey, thanks for joining me here today. Anybody that's uh, watching live, uh, thanks for joining me for the, for the live, uh, the live, uh, I guess what they call it a simulcast. That's not the right word for it. The live stream. I'm sorry. I guess I'm using uh, old school technology terms here. They used to call it a simulcast. That was way back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I guess we'll go with a go with a live stream. And uh, for those of you listening to the to the, uh, the podcast, welcome as well. So I uh, hope you had a good week. It's uh, Friday night. It's uh, actually May the fourteenth. It's uh, well, it is. It's what about? Uh, it's almost quarter till till twelve. It's eleven forty two a p.m. Excuse me on uh, late on a. Uh, on a Friday evening, headed into Saturday, I thought about not doing the podcast here tonight. I was, it's, it's a little bit late. I wanted to get to bed early. I kind of want to get up early-ish in the morning because I want to go uh, get my bike out. It's supposed to be a really nice day tomorrow, and I, I want to go enjoy a little bit of time on on Saturday because I've got a lot to do tomorrow, um, quite a bit actually. And I just I need to if I'm going to go ride, I need to go ride early. So uh, Lord willing, I'll be able to to get out of bed at a reasonable hour. But I wanted to get a podcast in too here tonight because it's been, well, I guess three weeks. I missed a couple of weeks in there and I, I hated it. You know, I had a actually a pretty nice uh, write-up last week already and uh, ready to go and and I wasn't, uh, I just wasn't able to do it. I just wasn't feeling all that well uh, last week for, for whatever reason. But I feel pretty good this week, and so I thought I'd go ahead and uh, squeeze in a, a podcast, even though it's late night and I probably should be in bed, but, you know, hey, got to do what you got to do, right? Something like that. So uh, anyway, you know, I report, I think the last time I did a podcast, I was seeing um, some reports that the cicadas were almost here, you know, the, the big 17-year cicada invasion we're supposed to get. Well, they haven't shown up yet. Um, it was kind of interesting. They they were talking about how the ground has to get to 68 degrees Fahrenheit, eight inches below the ground. And as soon as it hits that, that tripwire, that threshold, those things come popping up out of the ground and, you know, they make our lives miserable for about a month and a half. Uh, well, that hasn't happened, and I guess part of that is due to the fact it's been a little bit cooler than than the usual spring here so far, and you know, really, uh, most of uh, it actually got down pretty close to freezing. I remember I last Saturday I got up early to to get out, and uh, I remember there was actually frost on my windshield, and so that's uh, we're still dealing with that right now. But I think it's going to be warming up here over the next week or two. I think next weekend's supposed to get into the 80s. So I think that ground's going to be warming up pretty soon. And uh, probably in a week or maybe two weeks, we're going to be right on the leading edge of those 
uh, those little nasty, uh, nasty cicadas. I saw something today where they said that, I guess with a normal, there's a yearly variety of cicada that comes out, and they say that, that there's about two cicadas for every square yard. But they say with the 17-year the cicadas, which is what we're going to be getting, there's 200 per square yard, roughly. In some places, there's actually more than that and some less, but that's about the average density of these things. And uh, that's a whole lot of cicadas. And, and I just, uh, man, I, I'm really not looking forward to this. I know a friend of a friend of my mom's actually moved to uh, South Carolina to get away from these things. Now, if you live in a part of the country that uh, that doesn't get these, well, you're you're blessed and and consider yourself to be uh, be in a, in a very good place. Um, if you want to know what they're like, I mean, I've, this is my how many go rounds is this? Let's see, one, two, three. I guess this is my fourth go round. I guess I'm getting pretty old now, huh? Eh, anyway, um, so I've seen these things before, and I, I guess the closest I would. If you've never seen them, I would say, you know, think of like an Old Testament style plague. And that, that kind of gets you in the ballpark of what these things are like. So anyway, more on that when we uh, when we get there in a, in a, in a couple weeks here. Uh, so let's uh, move on here. I wanted to go ahead and talk a bit today about the religious wars of the 21st century. Now, there's a cheery title for you, right? Um, well, maybe not. But it, it is, a, I think, a very appropriate title. It, it's a, uh, a title that, that I think is very much um, what you and I are, are dealing with right now. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically this, this last week of some of the events that have been going on. Uh, in Israel and in, in, in the Gaza Strip and with, with some of the, the fighting that's been going back and forth between Hamas and, and between Israel. And it got me to thinking about, the, uh, about John Robbins' essay, The Religious Wars of the 21st Century. And I'd like to go ahead. This is such an amazing article. You know, I, I sometimes I, I talk, and, and if you've listened to the program or, or read it in my blog writing, you probably already know I'm a huge fan, huge admirer. Of, of the work of Dr. John Robbins. I, I think that he was uh, one of the really great teachers uh, that, that God has ever uh, gifted to the church. And, and I don't say that lightly either. Um, I, I, maybe that sounds like I'm, I'm overstating it to some people, but I, I don't think that I am. Uh, that, that really is my, uh, my opinion of, of his work. And sometimes when I, I, I read his stuff, I, I always have to say, well, you know, well, this is my favorite essay, or this is my favorite thing that he wrote, or this or that. Well, um, it's kind of hard to settle on, on one particular thing, but, uh, you know, I found his work to be really just a, a very high quality uh, throughout uh, and very consistent. But this, uh, I guess if I had to pick maybe a few essays that I had to, if you really twisted my arm and say, well, which ones are your favorite or which ones do you, do you really think are uh, essays that people should read now? This one is certainly would be on that, that short list of, of I think, the, the really uh, finest uh, essays that he's done. And, and it's The Religious Wars of the 20, uh, 21st Century. And as I said, this was written back in 2006. I'm going to put a link to this. It's out there on the Trinity Foundation website. There's also a, a version of this where he gives a – there's an audio version where he, he presents the paper. And he takes some questions and does some uh, Q&A at the end of the, uh, the lecture as well. Uh, I'm actually going to go ahead and put that link up too because the uh, – the audio version is 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 brilliant, and what's even the thing that's amazing is as good as his essay is, his Q and A session at the end 
of that uh, of that talk is is at least as good as as what the uh, the paper was that the, is the paper itself. So anyway, um, with all of that being said, why don't we dive in here? And I want to read just uh, a couple of paragraphs at the beginning of this and uh, kind of set the, the tone here and, and then discuss, um, maybe get into some, some uh, contemporary application of uh, some of what he says here. So here's, here's what John Robbins wrote. Uh, the phrase collapse of a civilization is a common figure of speech that misleads many into thinking that civilizations collapse in much the same way as buildings collapse during controlled demolitions. In fact, let me uh, go ahead and uh, share the screen there. Okay, there we go. Let's start that again from the top here. The phrase collapse of a civilization is a common figure of speech that misleads many into thinking that civilizations collapse in much the same way that buildings collapse during controlled demolitions. Or like the twin towers of the World Trade Center collapsed on September 11, 2001. The whole affair, they think, is dramatic, obvious, and over in a relatively short period of time. And when it is done, nothing is left but dust and rubble. The metaphor of civilizational collapse is misleading, and some people under its influence deny that the West is in collapse. But civilizations do not come crashing down in a matter of months or even years, and it is foolish to expect them to do so. I'm just going to stop right there and pause and just comment on that. This is one of the things... Um, John Robbins wrote uh, a number of things on the the, the collapse, decline of the West, as did um, Gordon Clark. You know, Gordon Clark wrote his uh, his book, uh, Christian View of Men and Things. I think, it, if I'm recalling correctly, I believe the publication date of of Clark's book was 1952. Now, if you're an American, you think back, oh, 1952, why that was, you know, that was a that was a great time. You know, America just won the, you know, the the uh, World War II, and uh, you know Korea was still ongoing, but um, you know America was riding high. You know the middle class was growing, the baby boom was going on. You know you had uh, see Eisenhower uh, became president in 1952, so I mean you had a, a, you know there's a lot of nostalgia in the United States certainly for the 1950s. It was a very prosperous time, and in a lot of ways it was a very uh, very happy, very good time for for the American people, especially after years of you know they had the depression in the 1930s, and you had the uh, the big war, the the World War II in the 1940s, and people were getting out from under all that. They were you know they were building houses, they were moving to the suburbs. There was a lot of a lot of a good good stuff, a lot of exciting things that were happening. Uh, it was a very affordable time. Uh, you know, the United States, uh, unlike Europe, you know, had not been devastated by World War II. Um, or Japan had been devastated during World War II. I mean, we had our industrial base. I mean, essentially, the United States was unscathed and was probably in its strongest position it's ever been, uh, both maybe uh, certainly uh, militarily, uh, but it was also very strong politically and, and even economically, you know, coming uh, coming out of the Great Great Depression and... and uh, when uh, people began to uh, regain control over their uh, their their income with uh, the tax cuts and the shrinkage of government that took place at the end of World War II, that was a boom time. It was huge. And yet, Gordon Clark in 1952 wrote this book that actually was talking about not all of it, but but he had some very there's a very strong theme of civilizational collapse in that book. And maybe in some ways, uh, John Robbins is, is picking up on, on some of that and, and expanding on it. 
So let's continue. Again, this is uh, the second paragraph here of the Religious Wars of the 21st Century. Quote, The West has been in collapse for more than a century. The biblical theology that created Western civilization 500 years ago has all but disappeared in the West. The rejection of Christianity in North America and Europe and the rise of several false religions, including Arminianism, Romanism, Pentecostalism, atheism, and mysticism, have led to the collapse of the West. The collapse is marked by, or more accurately, is the dissolution of the biblical family, husband, wife, and children, the economic and political regimentation of the individual in business enterprises, government ownership and control of most educational institutions, the growth of crime, the waning of civility, the acceptance of public profanity, obscenity, and homosexuality, the resurgence of brutality. To oppose some of the civilizational collapse, the religious right in America has embraced both Romanism and Judaism as saviors of the West, foolishly ignorant of the fact that they, as forms of unbelief, are destroyers of the West and causes of the collapse. What we call Western civilization arose because of the widespread preaching and belief of the gospel of justification by faith alone. Theologies that deny this doctrine are fatal to both souls and societies. End quote. Now, that is an amazing paragraph. And again, this was written in 2006. And when you read through, you know, kind of just, just going back here, he talks about the uh, the collapse uh, of the West is marked by, or more accurately, is, and, and he lists a number of things. He lists the dissolution of the biblical family, the economic and political, reg political regimentation of the individual and business enterprises, government ownership and control of most educational institutions, the growth of crime, the waning of civility, the acceptance of public profanity, obscenity, and homosexuality, and the resurgence of brutality. Well, do, have we seen any of that over the last year? Um, you know, since, uh, since 2006, I mean, all of those trends were in place back then. I mean, that was 15 years ago. Um, and it's only gotten worse. So, I mean, what, what he said here, I mean, it was certainly true in 2006. Uh, I suppose you could say it's even more true today. Um, and, and this is, he shows remarkable insight here. And I'm not going to, going to dig through all of that, but I, I think you can probably think, uh, very clearly about, about some of these things. I mean, he talks about the, the uh, the acceptance of public profanity, obscenity, and homosexuality. Uh, I mean, it's gotten to the point right now where you've got a, a transgender individual, uh, Bruce Jenner, who's running for uh, for the governor of California and taking me taken seriously as a candidate. I mean, that would never have happened in two thousand six. I mean, it wasn't that transgenderism wasn't around. It wasn't that the homosexual rights movement wasn't uh, around. It, it very much was. It was very much active. But something like that would never have been acceptable. You know, and the thing is that Bruce Jenner's doing this as a Republican. That is supposedly the, you know, the party of the religious right and the conservatives. And now I don't know if he's going to win or not. I, I don't think he's even polling uh, as the, the top candidate among Republicans. But he's definitely gotten a lot of attention, if nothing else, because he's a big celebrity. I mean, he's without question the most famous uh, transgender person in the United States. I, I don't think there's any question about that. Certainly not the only one, but I think he's certainly the most famous. And, and when you, you look at the acceptance of crime, I mean, crime has exploded over the last year. I mean, we've spent all of our time demonizing the police and exalting uh, criminals. And it's not a surprise that, uh, that we have massive spikes in crime. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people who are dead today because of, of violent crime who otherwise would be alive you know, had it not been for all of the uh, 
the uh, the foolish uh, activity that's been done in the wake of uh, George Floyd and, and some of the other uh, some of the other instance, instances uh, that have taken place over the past year, you know, d- defund the police. I mean, well, that's, you know, the police, that's one of the few legitimate functions of government, you know, as the apostle Paul teaches. I mean, he teaches us that, that the, uh, the, uh, the government, it really has two main functions. That is to praise the good, which is to pass laws that are in, in uh, accord with the law of God and to punish those who practice evil. And, the uh, that that's that that's the job of the police. That's the job of the justice system is to punish those who practice evil. Well, I mean, you've got a lot of people out there that want to tell you that the cops are the bad guys and the the criminals are the good guys, and you know that's that's just a that's an example of calling evil good and good evil. And and John Robbins picked up on this very clearly back in in two thousand six. Now, one of the things that he talks about in here, and and I think that this is. Uh, it, it, the title of the piece, of course, is The Religious Wars of the 20th century, uh, 21st Century. And he's looking, and so this is a, a predictive piece in a lot of ways. It was written in 2006, the first decade of the century, and, and uh, John Robbins is looking ahead to the, uh, the remainder of the century, and, and he sees a century of, of religious wars. And the reason I was thinking about this particular piece this week is, of course, what's been going on in the headlines. You know, think about all the recent violence that has occurred in uh, with uh, uh, Hamas and, and with Israel. And the uh, the Israeli army, in fact, just invaded uh, Gaza, the Gaza Strip here, within I guess the last day or two. And uh, there have been um, there's been a lot of fighting. Uh, there's been a lot of fighting in the territory of Israel proper. And a lot of demonstrations, and things look to be getting pretty serious. Now, who knows? Maybe all of this will will die down, and in a month from now, we'll all have forgotten about this. Uh, but it's also possible something like this could lead to a broader Middle Eastern war. And, and that is a, a real concern. It's a real possibility. You know, we don't know right now, and I'm not saying that I know right now, but it's it certainly is a, a dangerous and destabilizing situation. Now, it, one of the things, one of my purposes here in doing this program is not to take sides between Pal- the Palestinians, Palestinians and the Israelis. Now, that in itself probably requires some explanation due to the re- reflexive support uh, for Israel that's, that's expected from both Americans in general and Christians in particular. I'm both. I'm an American and I'm a Christian. But I'm, I'm taking a neutral stance here on what's going on between the Palestinians and the Israelis because I believe that is the proper biblical stance. To uh, borrow, in fact, this is to borrow a phrase that uh, that John Robbins used in his his essay. Americans, in general, and Christians in particular, do not have a dog in the fight that's going on over there in the Middle East, and we ought to remain neutral. Yeah, Israel, and in this in this statement here would probably surprise a lot of Americans to hear this. But Israel is a foreign nation; it's a foreign country. Israel is not America. America is not Israel. They're separate entities. And this is a biblical stance. You know, as I said, the idea that we're to remain neutral. And again, that sounds very strange to people, but the biblical stance is that national governments, 
whether it's the United States government, the Canadian government, uh, the uh, government of Great Britain, the government of Israel, any country, the job of that na- the job of that national government is to mind its own business. You know, MYOB, mind your own business. I mean, that maybe sounds kind of strange, but that actually is a biblical principle for for geopolitics. And that's actually a pretty good summary of what's been known since the 1640s as Westphalian sovereignty. I've written some and I've talked some about the Westphalian world order. And the Westphalian world order is the idea that the highest level of government is national government. And it's the job of the of, of each national government to take care of its own business within its own territory and leave other people alone. Mind your own business. But, you know, we've long forgotten that. I mean, the original foreign policy of the United States, uh, sometimes, and in fact, again, referring to John Robbins' essay, he called it strategic independence. And one of the best and most famous statements of the idea of strategic independence is this, and this was expressed by John Quincy Adams in, in 1821. I'm just going to read this to you here. Quote, wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will her, and by her, uh, Adams means the United States. Uh, there will her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher of the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. So, you know, that, that's where that quote, that's a very famous quote, you know, going abroad in search of monsters to destroy. But what Adams does here is, is he summarizes very well the idea of the Westphalian world order and what a, a Christian foreign policy looks like. It's the job of the United States government to oversee and, and to take care of the United States. That's quite enough on its own. I mean, it's not like we don't have any problems here in the United States, right? I mean, yeah, we got our act together perfectly, and so we've got all the time and money to go tell everybody else how to live. Well, no, we don't. And, I mean, very obviously we don't. And, and we have a lot of very serious problems in the United States of America. But there are, are relatively few people who take seriously the idea that we, we don't go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. There's a, a term that's sometimes used for that, and it's isolationist. And when someone calls a person an isolationist, that's, a, that's actually kind of a swear word. It's one of those words that's used to discredit somebody and essentially remove them uh, from the discussion. I mean, if, if, if I call you an, uh, an isolationist, what I'm saying is that your ideas are beyond the pale, you're a very, very bad person, and nobody should listen to you. It, it's a debate ender. It's, 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 not even, it, it's not a debating point. It's, it's designed to end a debate. It's kind of like calling somebody a racist. You know, the, there's that old joke, you know, what, uh, you know, a racist is a conservative who's winning a, an argument with a liberal. And, and I think there's some truth to that, you know, that, that a lot of times people will employ that term and say, well, so-and-so is a racist just to try to uh, tar and feather him uh, as, as somebody that's, that's a bad person, somebody who ought not to be listened to by right-thinking people. Well, isolationist serves in kind of the same way. It's the same sort of thing with respect uh, to foreign policy. You call somebody an isolationist, well, that's just a, that person's a terrible person and we're not going to listen to him. But that actually, you know, the so-called isolationist, 
that actually is a Christian foreign policy. And, and in fact, the, the funny thing is the, the real isolationists are the people who continually want to uh, set one country against another. Uh, people who believe in the Westphalian world order, people who believe in a, a, uh, a foreign policy that doesn't involve trying to strong arm every other country, they actually are the people who are the anti-isolationists because they want to trade and they want to do business and they want to be able to work with other countries. You know, it's, it's the people that are, are constantly trying to, to start wars that are trying to divide one nation or, or maybe even one whole region against uh, another region, pit people against one another. Uh, now Ron Paul's made that argument, and I think he's absolutely right to say that. One thing I wanted to do, and, and just maybe to, to bring the, the focus of this into the current events, I wanted to talk a little bit here about a, uh, a piece that I read by a, a journalist, uh, a young man, a, a journalist, maybe he's in his 30s, I believe, by the name of Michael Tracy. And uh, this was a piece that he had written, oh gosh, I, I guess within just the last few days. But the title of it is America First Conservatives Declare, Actually, We Meant Israel First. And what he does is he talks about all of the, the sort of usual kind of uh, mindless, we stand with Israel uh, comments that are made by American politicians, in particular, not just conservatives, not just liberals, but politicians of every stripe. And he cites here quite a few um, examples of, of Republicans coming out in an almost reflexive, unthinking defense of Israel. And I'll just read through a few of these here quickly. Here's Kevin McCarthy. He's a GOP minority leader. Israel has every right to defend itself against violence and the barrage of rockets from Hamas. The United States unequivocally stands with our ally Israel and the Jewish people. And Ronna McDaniel, the Republican Party, she's the the uh, GOP uh, chairwoman. Uh, the Republican Party stands with Israel, a nation that has every right to defend itself against violence and the barrage of rockets from Hamas. And the RNC even puts out uh, an official statement on, uh, on Israel. The Senate Republicans, as terrorists in Gaza fire rockets at Israeli citizens, Israel has every right to defend itself. The actions of Hamas are despicable. We are proud to stand with a partner and ally Israel against terrorism. Governor Kay Ivey of Alabama. Alabama stands with Israel. Doug Ducey, another Republican. Arizona stands with Israel. Madison Cawthorn, he's a, a re Republican uh, congressman, I think from North Carolina. America has and always will stand with Israel. I, I, got, I saw something that was put out by uh, Donald Trump's organization here this evening. He said America must stand with Israel. And, and so you see this type of thing. Here's Ted Cruz, another big-name Republican. I unequivocally stand with Israel with its right to defend itself. So you have all these people popping up and, and basically falling all over themselves to, to defend and, and to, uh, to identify with Israel and to, to basically insert themselves into this, this conflict going on in a foreign nation that's 6,000 miles away from American shores. And, you know, again, one of the things about this is that America does not have a dog in this fight. Let me go ahead and I'm going to read, this is some additional, uh, let's see if I can find this here. Um, yeah, let's, uh, let's take a look at this. I'm going to read a few more paragraphs out of the Religious Wars of the 21st Century. So here we go. The result of two centuries of irrationalism, 
irrationalism is that at the beginning of the 21st century, we are faced not with a hopeful prospect, but with an even more dismal prospect than our great-grandfathers faced 100 years ago. The last 100 years has seen the resurgence of medieval Romanism and the emergence of a Romanist zealot uh, organization such as Opus Dei. Medieval Romanism is not just confined to the Roman Catholic Church state and its thousands of educational institutions, but has gained many adherents among nominal Protestants as well. The prolific authors Norman Geisler and R.C. Sproul, and many lesser-known Protestant theologians and philosophers as well, are disciples of the official philosopher of the Roman Church state, Thomas Aquinas. Their influence has misled most Protestants away from a biblical and reformed view of philosophy and apologetics and into a compromise with Rome. Medieval Islam is now usually called fundamentalist Islam and medieval Judaism with the establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948 are on the rise as well. All three religions, Romanism, Islam, and Judaism are false, militant, and violent. Devout members of each group hate, oppose, and plot against members of the other two. But today, the date is 2006, not 10,006, or 1,006, excuse me. And the true believers of each of these medieval religions have access to nuclear, biological, chemical, and electromagnetic weapons. Barring dramatic divine interventions such as a new reformation or the second coming of Christ, the wars of the 21st century will be religious wars. They will be worse than the secular wars of the 20th century. The three principal protagonists will be the three medieval religions that have warred with each other for centuries. Already the battles have begun. It is important to realize that the Christian has no dog in this fight. Neither Romanism, nor Judaism, nor Islam is Christianity. Yet many who profess to be Christians support either Judaism or Romanism. The so-called Christian right in the United States, influenced by Romanism, dispensationalism, and Reconstructionism, has been a supporter of Israel, Judaism, and Rome for decades. The principal figures in the American conservative movement have been Romanist, though their source of funds has largely been Protestant. The principal figures of the so-called neoconservatives, neocons, are Jews. The U.S. government, in violation of the U.S. Constitution, has taken tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars from American taxpayers and given them to the government of Israel over the past 50 years. We have fought wars and spent billions trying to prop up various Roman Catholic dictatorships. More recently, the U.S. government has started sending money taken by forced from the American people to Arab and Muslim nations as well. The conservative movement in the United States has abandoned the American and biblical foreign policy of strategic independence pursued by our governments in 1776 for a policy of global interventionism that has angered many foreign nations and peoples, most recently the Muslims. Because Christianity is neither Romanism, nor Judaism, nor Islam, there is no need for the United States, a historically, if not currently, Christian nation, to be involved in the religious wars of the 21st century. But because of the influence of American citizens and non-citizens who are Jews, Catholics, and dispensational evangelicals, we are already involved. In fact, because of our foreign policy of interventionism developed in the 20th century, and because of our more recent policy of preemptive war, the United States has become the primary target of militant Muslims worldwide. And not of Muslims only, agents of both Israel and Rome are active in the United States, both gathering intelligence and influencing policy. The U.S. government is manipulated by foreign interests. Both Israel and the Vatican see the United States as their proxy in this religious war. Now, in that uh, extended reading there that I just gave from the religious wars of the 21st century, Robin cites uh, irrationalism as the general cause of our foreign porn, 
current foreign policy mess. And he gives two particular examples. He talks about the aggressive growth of medieval Roman Catholicism and its influence in Protestant circles and the rise of, uh, of Judaism. And he also talks about Islam as well. But just kind of focusing on the, uh, uh, the rise of the, uh, the Roman Catholicism and the, 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 uh, the Jewish angle for a moment, America now has its second Catholic president, who's hard at work carrying out the Pope's political and economic agenda. I was going to uh, actually do this uh, last week, and I, I was going to talk about a, uh, a conference that was, well, it was a, a virtual conference, I guess a Zoom conference, a Vatican Zoom conference. Um, here's a, a headline if you happen to be watching it. Let's see. Oh, goodness, what do I have here? Got an ad popping up. I don't want, yes. So here's the headline. The Vatican Coronavirus Conference features Fauci, Francis, and Aerosmith. This is from Fox News. And this is a story from May 7th. So uh, it was from last week. It says the CEOs of vaccine makers Pfizer and Moderna joined Cardinals, academics, and the lead guitarist of Aerosmith in opening a unique Vatican conference on COVID-19, other global health threats, and how science and solidarity and spirituality can address them. And the uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci was uh, was one of the uh, the uh, presenters, one of the speakers uh, at this conference, and of course, so is Pope Francis. And, you know, Pope Francis uh, is a Jesuit. Uh, Anthony Fauci is a is Jesuit trained. He's not formally a Jesuit. I was listening to a, a piece by, uh, it was a podcast by Chris Pinto not too long ago. And he, he talked, he used a term, um, Jesuit of the short robe, which uh, apparently is a term that originated in the, the uh, 19th century. And it was used to describe somebody who wasn't maybe necessarily formally part of the Jesuit order, at least publicly, you know, who knows what really goes on, but it's funny who wasn't, you know, a, uh, fully identified as a member of the, the Jesuits, but somebody who was Jesuit influenced, somebody who was, was simp- uh, sympathetic to them. And of course, Anthony Fauci went to Jesuit school from his youth all the way through his undergrad years. I believe he went to Cornell. I think he went to Cornell for his medical degree, but uh, he was, was Jesuit trained uh, all the way up through his, his undergraduate. I know he went to Regis High School in, in New York, and I believe he went to a Jesuit uh, elementary school. And then I also believe, if memory serves me correctly, he went to Holy Cross uh, University, which was also a Jesuit school. So, you know, you have this substantial influence. Uh, I mean, Anthony Fauci and, and Pope Francis are basically an echo chamber. And what's also very interesting, too, is with our second Roman Catholic president, basically everything that that Joe Biden, the policies that he's pursuing, flooding the country with immigrants, uh, the Green New Deal, uh, things like universal basic income. He doesn't call, Biden hasn't called it that yet, but he's kind of pushing it all. All this socialism. This is all stuff straight out of Pope Francis playbook. Essentially, you know, it seems like Joe Biden and the Democrats are trying to implement uh, politically in the United States the policy positions that, that Pope Francis has laid out uh, in his encyclicals and, and what also uh, other uh, popes have uh, set forth uh, prior to that. So, you know, you, you have this very strong Vatican influence that, that is trying to uh, really uh, assert itself in the United States and has been very successful uh, actually in doing that. So that's, that's one side of it. You know, then the other side of it is, is that uh, many evangelicals, many ev- uh, American evangelicals have been blinded 
by uh, dispensational eschatology. They've been blinded both to the papal antichrist, and they have also uh, become obsessed with the uh, state of Israel at the same time. And so what they do is they fail to understand that neither Roman Catholicism nor Judaism or Christianity, uh, that neither one of them are have the necessary propositions to create or to sustain a free society. And as, as John Robbins noted in his essay, as forms of unbelief, they are destroyers of the West. You know, you're, you're not going to... to uh, save Western civilization. You're not going to uh, save the United States of America. Uh, Christians are not by making alliances with uh, with Roman Catholics and with Jews because they do not believe the necessary ideas uh, in order to be able to correct the problems that we have. And in fact, the ideas that are promoted by uh, individuals of both of those groups are destructive of the the principles of a free republic. Now, we've talked a little bit about the, the Roman Catholic influence on the United States. Now, th- this would take probably several programs if we were to even explore that in depth. I just kind of very briefly went over a few things. But I also wanted to talk a bit about uh, Israeli influence on the United States. For instance, here, um, you know, John Robbins wrote, he said, the U.S. government is manipulated by foreign interests. Both Israel and the Vatican see the United States as their proxy in this religious war. Now, here's a headline, and this was just from uh, about a year and a half ago. Israel accused of planting mysterious spy devices near the White House. The likely Israeli spying efforts were uncovered during the Trump presidency, several former top U.S. officials said. And this is from Politico, which is uh, is certainly not a conservative publication. I think you could probably call them... Uh, center, or, or certainly, I think they're they're much more favorable to the Democrats. So this isn't uh, anything that's uh, coming from some, uh, oh, I don't know, right wing publication, or or uh, certainly from Donald Trump supporters. But let's read just a little bit of this. The U.S. government con- concluded within the past two years that Israel was most likely behind the placement of cell phone surveillance devices that were found near the White House and other sensitive locations around Washington, according to three former senior U.S. officials with knowledge of the matter. Now, this is not the first time that Israel has been caught spying on the United States. This is something they do regularly. I'm sure they're doing it at the very moment I'm doing this podcast. You know, and yet there are so many evangelicals blinded by dispensationalist eschatology that Israel can do no wrong in their eyes. In fact, you can't criticize Israel at all. Because if you criticize Israel, somehow you're, you're breaking a, a commandment somewhere in Scripture, um, and you're an all-around very bad person. Yeah, but, but there's a lot that Israel has done that can be criticized. They're a foreign country. And when they do these kinds of things, like spy on the United States of America, they justly deserve to be criticized. And like I say, there are many many examples of this. And I'm just going to cite a few. Here's another example. Back in in 9-11, and this is something that uh, has been memory-hold, largely speaking, but you had uh, the uh, the so-called dancing Israelis. And what it was is... The uh, you can see this picture here. This is if you're looking at the uh, uh, the uh, the live stream. There's a picture there. This is taken in the morning, of 9/11, and it shows both the twin towers on fire. Taken probably, I guess, it's from the New Jersey side of of the river. 
and I guess that's the Hudson River there, and and there's taken from the New Jersey side, and there was a a person, it was a a housewife. The uh, this particular article identifies who noticed uh, some very strange behavior. Um, and that was these these men that were dancing, and they were looking at the Twin Towers, and they were dancing, and uh, they were kind of high-fiving it. I don't know if they're actually giving high-fives or not, but, you know, they were celebrating. And uh, let me read a little bit out of this article. It's written by Philip Giraldi, and uh, he writes this. He says, But the hands-off attitude toward Israel shifted dramatically when, on September eleventh, two 2001, a New Jersey housewife saw something from the window of her apartment building, which overlooked the World Trade Center. She watched as the buildings burned and crumbled, but also noted something strange. Three young men were kneeling on the roof of a white transit van parked by the water's edge, making a movie in which they featured themselves high-fiving and laughing in front of the catastrophic scene unfolding behind them. The woman wrote down the license plate number of the van and called the police, who responded quickly, and soon both the local force and the FBI began looking for the vehicle, which was subsequently seen by other witnesses in the various in various locations along the New Jersey waterfront, its occupants celebrating and filming. The license plate number revealed that the van belonged to a New Jersey registered company called Urban Moving Systems. At 4 p.m., the vehicle was spotted and pulled over. Five men between the ages of 22 and 27 years of age emerged. They were detained at gunpoint and handcuffed. They were all Israelis. One of them had $4,700 in cash hidden in his sock, and another had two foreign passports. Bomb-stiffing dogs reacted to the smell of explosives in the van. According to the initial police report, the driver identified Sivan Kurtzberg, the driver identified as Sivan Kurtzberg, stated, We are Israeli. We are not your problem. Your problems are our problems. The Palestinians are problem. The other four passengers were Sivan's brother Paul, Yaron Shmuel, Oded Elner, and Omer Marmari. The men were detained at the Bergen County Jail in New Jersey before being transferred to the FBI's Foreign Counterintelligence Section, which handles allegations of spying. So they had the dancing Israelis, and I remember when that came out. I remember it was reported by Carl Cameron on, on Fox News, and, and that report came out within a day or maybe the same day or the next day, right after uh, 9-11. And then the story was, was deep-sixed. It kind of was flushed down the memory hole. But there are some people that still, still remember this very well and, and have written about it. Uh, to give you another example of, say, uh, perfidy uh, by Israel against the United States. Um, here's a headline. This is from The Guardian. This is from... Uh, from December. And it says, former U.S. spy Jonathan Pollard arrives in Israel. And, you know, this is a case where, well, it looks like I wasn't able to uh, to get the, the, whole, uh, the whole story. But Jonathan Pollard, and, and it says here that, you know, he was a former Navy analyst who served three decades in prison for leaking thousands of classified documents to Israel. Uh, and he has, arri- has arrived in Tel Aviv after being released from parole. So he was paroled right at the end of the Trump administration. Uh, and he was, was sent back uh, back to Israel. And he had been part of the U.S. Navy. He was a U.S. citizen. But he, he did enormous damage to the United States of America with his spying back in the 1980s. And both he and his handler, his Israeli handler, were pardoned uh, by, the, uh, by the Trump administration. And, and I think that that is an outrage. Uh, so, I mean, here you have um, Israel is, is not a great ally of the United States. Um, it's a foreign country. It's a foreign country that showed itself to be 
uh, very hostile to the United States in some respects. Now, as as a Christian, as as someone who who believes in uh, in the Westphalian world order, that that's the biblical um, approach to uh, to geopolitics. I don't wish Israel well. I don't wish the people of Israel ill. I don't wish bad things to happen to people. But we also have to understand that they are a foreign country. And the United States of America, more specifically the people of the United States of America, do not owe the uh, Israel. Uh, there's no moral debt. There's no uh, obligation, either financial or morally, to support Israel. It's a foreign country. You know, we wish them well, but it's not our job to, to defend their liberties. That's their job to take care of that. Yeah, and, and when you see all these politicians coming out in sort of reflexive support of Israel, I think that's a big problem. And I think that that's something that, um, that we need to, you know, as Americans, take a closer look at. Well, that's about all the time that I had for this week. Let's see, I've been going on here for, I guess, about 45 minutes. So, yeah, yeah that, that's about a wrap here. I say there's, there's so much more that I wanted to talk about, but it's, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do in one podcast. So, uh, Lord willing, I'll be back again, and we can uh, maybe uh, either pick this up or, or maybe move on to a different topic. But I'm sure I'll come back and, and revisit some of this again. But, I mean, right now, you know, we live at a time where you have uh, the religious wars of the 20th century, as John Robbins talked about, uh, seem to be coming to a head. Now, again, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, maybe all of this stuff will blow over, and there won't be much that will come of it. But, I mean, it's, it's a, a dangerous situation, and it's been a dangerous situation for many years. It's a powder keg, as, as some people term it. Uh, certainly the Middle East is. And, and something could go off, you know, and, and we don't know. Um, as, as Christians, of course, we pray for wisdom uh, in those, uh, those who, uh, who lead our country and, and for those in, in other countries. Uh, the leaders of other countries, we, pay, we pray for peace. Um, we ask the cooler heads would prevail, uh, and we also, you know, pray that the uh, the irrationalism that has so gripped the West over the past hundred plus years, as John Robbins talked about, would be replaced by discernment, and that discernment can only come through the preaching of and belief in the gospel of justification by belief alone. That's where it has to begin. This is ultimately, it's all a spiritual problem. It's not a political problem. It's not a, an economic problem. This is, a pol this is a spiritual problem. And it's a problem of unbelief. And, and right now, the West has become unbelieving, the formerly Christian West. Uh, I hate to say that, but, but that's, uh, that's where we are today. So as I said, that's, uh, that's about a wrap for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate that. For those watching on the live stream, thanks for joining me. And uh, for those of you listening on the podcast, thanks again. It's been, been great to have you here, and I uh, look forward to, uh, to talking to you again. Until next time, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's word. Good night, everybody.